the vast percentage of the world's intact biodiversity is on lands that belong to First Nations. These are not just the metaphorical guardians of nature. These are the literal guardians. That's Wade Davis, author, scholar, leadership chair in cultures and ecosystems at risk at the University of British Columbia. He's our guest today on the Akamemuk podcast. Dance, Tawau, and welcome to the Akamema Podcast. I'm your host, Perry Belgard, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations. Akamemuk is a Plains Cree word for you all persevere, or in other words, let's keep going and don't give up. On this podcast, we discuss the leading issues facing First Nations peoples with top experts, with elders, and community leaders. A leading issue now is the dramatic loss of biodiversity on the planet. The United Nations estimates that a million species of plants and wildlife will become extinct if we continue with business as usual. Canada, one of 70 nations that pledged to reverse this trend by committing to put nature at the center of COVID-19 economic recovery plans. And Prime Minister Trudeau says, Working with First Nations people is key to making that happen. For more, we are joined today by Wade Davis, an award-winning author, explorer, filmmaker, Harvard-trained botanist and professor of anthropology at the University of British Columbia, and a leading expert and supporter of Indigenous language, culture, and knowledge. Wade, welcome to our podcast. Thanks, Perry. It's really an honor to be with you, my friend. Good. Good to see you and good for you to be with us. So my first question, Wade, what do you see as the role of First Nations in reversing the biodiversity loss, not only here in Canada, but throughout the world? Well, Perry, the most important thing to note is that the vast percentage of the world's intact biodiversity is on lands that at least titularly belong to First Nations. These are not just the metaphorical guardians of nature, as some people would say. These are the literal guardians in terms of politics, spirit of place, ownership of land, lineage, uh, history, myth. And, and so that's an important point. The other key thing is that you know all cultures are myopic, and we are faithful to our own loyal uh, uh, notions of reality. You know, we think in the West that we're the real world, and everybody else is a failed attempt to be us. But the mm -hmm. triumph of our kind of secular materialism may be dominant and may be ubiquitous, but that doesn't say that it's normal. Our way of thinking about nature, this extractive model derives directly from our attempts in the Enlightenment to liberate ourselves from the tyranny of absolute faith. And we threw out all notions of myth, magic, mysticism, when Descartes said all that exists is mind and matter. And, and the human, the, 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 the world became a stage set upon which only the human drama unfolded as science made a house cleaning of belief. But that mm -hmm. model is not the norm, it's the exception. Look around the world through the ethnographic lens. The vast majority of human populations have a relationship with nature based not on extraction, but on reciprocity. The simple idea that the earth owes its bounty to people and people owe their fidelity to the earth. For most indigenous peoples, the people are not the problem, they're the solution. And, you know, when I, I, I did the Massey lectures and an editor put on the snappy title, Why Ancient Wisdom Matters in the Modern World, and I didn't like the title because it implied that Indigenous people were vestigial. 
when they're not. Mm. They're dynamic living peoples walking the earth today. But I answered that question with two words, climate change. I could have just as well said biodiversity. And mm-hmm. the point is that the very existence of these other visions of life, these other ways of being, these other intuitions about the nature of being alive, the intuition of the Barasan and the Makuna in the Northwest Amazon, whose most profound cultural insight is that plants and animals are just people in another dimension of reality. The, these other ways of being, Perry, put the lie to those of us in our one narrow lineage of intellectual thought that say that we cannot change, as we all know we must change, all of us, the fundamental way that we interact with the natural world. Now, you've traveled throughout the world. And and, and for, for our listeners, I always say our worldview from a First Nations perspective, our Indigenous people's perspective, we talk about our relationship to Mother Earth mm-hmm. and Father Sky and our land and the water and the four-leggeds and the flyers and the swimmers and the crawlers and and the spirit beings in the four directions, you know? So we're all part of that. And, you know, Perry, what happens then is people come along and say, what are you talking about, spirit beings? What are you talking about the four? But the point is that it's not about whether those ideas are true or not. It's, again, this idea of metaphor. That's what's driven the relationship. And what do I mean by that? If I was raised as I was in my tradition to believe that a forest exists to be cut, it's just mere cellulose and bored feet. That made me mm-hmm. very different than my brothers and sisters amongst the Kwakwakawak, who raised to believe that the forest was the abode of Hukuk and the crooked beak of heaven, spirit that would have to be embraced during the Hamatsa initiation. Now, it's not about whether I'm right or they're right or they're wrong, and I'm right. It's, it's how the metaphor plays out in terms of the ecological footprint of a people. If mm. you're raised to believe that a mountain is an inert pile of rock ready to be mined, you're going to have a different relationship to it than my godchildren in the mountains of Peru raised to believe uh, in the Runakuna, in the Quechua civilization, that a mountain is an apu deity that will direct your destiny. And again, it's not about who's right and who's wrong. It's about the consequences of the belief. And and metaphor has, in fact, driven the relationship between human beings and the earth. I mean, for example, when the elders of the Arawako and the uh, Wiwa and the Kogi, the elder brothers, if you will, the sun priests of the Sierra Nevada de Santa Marta, tell you that the blood that flows in your veins is identical to the water that flows in the river, in this case, the Magdalena um, River. Um, Yes, they're talking in metaphor, but they're also in a way talking quite literally because we all know based on the hydrological cycle that when we die, our blood will drain from our bodies and flow to the ocean as readily as a river flows to the sea. So again, just reaffirms, we're all connected. and We're all connected to the plants, the water, the land, the trees, as human beings, we're all connected. And that's something to build on. Let me just add one thing to that, Perry, is that the Mm -hmm. whole history of of, of the Western intellectual experiment has been based on this sort of conceit that technology alone uh, represents some kind of um, superiority. And so we sort of classified cultures from the sort of the savage to the barbarian to the civilized of the Strand of London based on technological wizardry. But that's only one trait of the human uh, intuition and, and adaptation. The other peoples are not failed attempts at being us or failed attempts at being modern. Every culture is a unique answer to a fundamental question. What does it mean to be human and alive? And when all the peoples of the world answer that question, they do so in the 7,000 voices of humanity. And some societies focus on technological prowess, 
Others focus with equal intellectual capacity, equal human potential, equal mental acuity on the complex task of unraveling the mystic threads of memory inherent in a myth. Now, that's Mm. not trivial. If you look at the Aboriginal civilization of Australia, the whole essence of that society was the antithesis of progress, improvement, extraction. The whole civilization was based on a devotional philosophy, the dreaming, that emphasized stasis. The purpose of life wasn't to change anything. It was to do the ritual gestures necessary to keep the earth exactly as it was at its time of creation. Now, if all of humanity had followed that devotional trajectory, yes, we wouldn't have put a man on the moon. But Perry, we also wouldn't be talking about global climate change and our Mm -hmm. capacity to transform the life support systems of the planet. So 50,000 years from now, when people look back, if we're still around, which adaptive instinct will prove will prove to have been the most sustainable now one of the other points way that you've always talked about was the linkage between biodiversity loss and indigenous people's language loss you know and so in canada we've got over 90 different first nations languages you know with different dialects Mm -hmm. 60 plus different nations with the different dialects around 90 And, and so we've pointed out for years and years that we've been losing our languages and cultures and at a similar rate to the biodiversity loss. So in your experience, how are they linked? Well, Perry, we have this idea, both in terms of, particularly in terms of cultures, you know, the, you know, the, you know, cultures that are quaint and colorful, but destined to fade away as if by natural law, as if they're failed attempts to keep up with history, right? Nothing could be further from the truth. In every case, these are dynamic living peoples being driven out of existence by identifiable forces. Now, those forces can be ideological, they can be industrial, but that observation is actually an optimistic one because if human beings are the agents of cultural loss and erosion, we can be the facilitators of cultural survival. And 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 the 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 issue of language is so critical. You you said it's as bad. It's wor- the most apocalyptic scenario in the realm of biological diversity would not suggest that fifty percent of all plants and animals are on the brink of extinction. And yet, that the most apocalyptic scenario barely approaches what we know to be the most optimistic scenario for language loss. And Perry, the the year that you and I were born. Uh, there were 7,000 languages spoken on earth. Now, language mm-hmm. is not just vocabulary or grammar. It's a flash of the human spirit. It's the way that the soul of every culture comes into the world. Every language I once wrote is an old growth forest of the mind, a watershed of thought, an ecosystem, mm-hmm. spiritual and, and ecological possibilities. By absolute academic consensus, half of those languages aren't being taught to infants, which means that we're at risk of losing fully half of humanity's intellectual, social, spiritual knowledge. And it's essential to say that the importance of a language, the poetry of a language, the profundity of a language, the history and depth of a language is not a simple correlate of the number of people who speak that language. Quite to the contrary, every single language counts. Every language is a branch on the tree of human knowledge. And when we lose a language, we lose part of ourselves. And yet every fortnight, by absolute academic consensus, somewhere on earth, uh, some elder passes away and carries with him or her into the grave the last syllables of an ancient tongue. And this does not Mm. have to happen. No, that's something uh, I think in Canada, we, we said that our indigenous languages should be viewed as Canada's national treasures. And I really like that line you use that every language is a branch on this tree of knowledge, you know, and once you lose something, you, you, you lose a vast uh, 
teaching, a vast knowledge, a vast connection to land, to story, to, to the metaphors, to how our worldview is taken. So, you know, I, I was asked to write a, a piece for a beautiful volume put out by the Skidikit Museum by the Haida. And uh, one point I meant, you know, I lived in Haida Gwaii and I, I grew up with people like good friends of ours, Guja and Jimmy Hart, mm -hmm. and, um, you know, um, that whole mob of wonderful characters who transformed that, that culture. Um, but, but, you know, I used to say, you know, I can, I can, I can describe a raven in English flying through the sky, but I don't speak raven. I, I can mm -hmm. I can I can tell you how I feel when I walk on the beaches at, at, at Rose Spit, but I can't speak to the wind and I can't speak mm -hmm. to the waves and I can't speak to the whales. I can't I can't speak to the salmon, but the Haida can, if you know mm -hmm. what I mean. The Haida mm -hmm. can speak because that's their place. I was once in Tofino at a book reading. It was wonderful with a young um, Nuchalnith kid who had written a book and his grandfather was there. And then we got into this whole thing about language and the grandfather, as you know, elders, what they can be like, he stood up and said, you, you're both just ridiculous. And he walks over to the window, looks out the window of that bookstore onto the cove of the ocean. And he just began to recite place names. It was unbelievable. It was a litany that went on for 10 or 15 minutes. He didn't comment. He just said that, it, it, of course, in his language. And what he was saying to that audience is that these boys don't have any idea what they're talking about. They, they, they're well-intentioned, but let me tell you about the depth of what language and spirit of place and our homeland means, you know? And that was a profound lesson for me. Now, it's 2020, and uh, we've talked a little bit about global climate change. Uh, we have the 2015 Paris uh, Accord, you know, that all the countries of the world signed on to, to, to try to do what they can to make sure that the, uh, the warming doesn't go past two degrees in the world. And uh, now we in Canada, you have this theme about uh, plans to build back better the economy, to, to balance the environment and the economy and looking at clean, green energy. And then as well, internationally, uh, His Royal Highness Prince Charles talks about the Great Reset, you know, on a, on a global stage, international stage. So what do you think about both of those initiatives domestically here in Canada, you know, with the theme that started to build back better, you know, focusing on solar, wind, geothermal, hydro, clean, the clean green economy here as in a nation state, but tying that into the, the global movement with what Prince Charles is trying to do through the Great Reset. What are your thoughts on how things can move forward together collectively? Well, I've always felt that Canada was doing itself a disservice by clinging to sort of old rhythms of an extractive economy. You know, we're essentially a petrostate. Our dollar floats based on the oil markets. And given the extent of our university system, the brilliance of our people, the educational levels across the board of our citizenry, I've always thought that was a, a, a less an example of a, a dearth of opportunities for the country to move in a different direction than a lack of imagination on the part of politicians elected to, to lead us. The build back phrase does catch me because it, you know, one of the things about the economy is that it should run in circles, but it's always arrows. You know, for three centuries now, we've been consuming the ancient sunlight of the world. 
we have we we've we viewed the natural world um, as not part of the equation of economic um, outcomes. You know, the 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 oceans and the, the the sky and 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 the rivers have been treated as you know waste baskets where we can you know the cost of of pollution has never been factored in in into the economic models of of productivity and success. One thing COVID has clearly taught us, uh, Perry, is that we're biological beings on a living planet. You know, a microorganism 10,000 times smaller than a grain of salt literally commandeered our cells, mm -hmm. caused us to make it, not us. It also attacked not just our biology, but the network of connectivity and community that is for a social species like humans, what claws and, and teeth represent to a tiger. At the same time, we saw in a remarkable way the resilience of the world. Wasn't it amazing? Suddenly, the Himalaya shining over cities like Karachi and Kathmandu, Delhi, that hadn't seen those snow peaks in two generations. You know, wetlands outside of Mumbai, full of flamingos, wild boar in the streets of Barcelona, the canals in Venice, clear rivers in Colombia running like trout streams through major cities. You know, the earth is so resilient. You know, it's humbling to remember that if you took our entire lineage, I'm not just talking about Homo sapiens, our progenitor Homo erectus, all the way back to Homo afarensis 3.5 million years ago. And if you took that whole lineage chronologically and put it on a 24-hour clock being the history of the world, our entire presence as a lineage wouldn't occupy more than a second. In other words, our presence has mm. been so fleeting the world will win in the end. Um, but the question is, what kind of conditions will we leave and bequeath to our children? I mean, I think one of the most profound, you know, there are a lot of, as you well know, as our national chief, there's so many cliches that run around First Nations from the myth of the ecological nat native, which in some sense uh, completely denies the humanity and, and fundamental material aspirations as First Nations, as human beings. But there's something that is always repeated by First Nations that I find so powerful, this idea of thinking in seven generations. That's and, that, and that's not metaphor. That's not a glib statement. That's not a, a slogan. It really is how Indigenous people, in my experience, and I've been with uh, you know, Indigenous people on, on six continents, think about the world. And I, and I think um, you know, that is... A perspective that Prince Charles, who I admire enormously, you know, it, 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 before we get too uh, discouraged by any of this, we do have to remember that, you know, when you and I were kids, Perry, just getting people to stop throwing garbage out of a car window was a great environmental victory. That's Nobody right. spoke about the biosphere or biodiversity. Now those terms are part of the vernacular of school children. Uh, no country had a ministry of environment. Now there isn't one that doesn't. However, effective or ineffective they may be. And that vision of the earth from space that came home to us on Christmas Eve 1968 will be spoken about 50,000 years hence if we're still around. That's when everything shifted and we saw that we weren't a limitless horizon, an infinite earth to be exploited. We were a very finite blue planet floating in the velvet void of space. And I might add that there's one other great revelation of science that has not yet taken hold. And that actually comes from genetics because geneticists in our lifetimes have shown that the genetic endowment of humanity is a continuum. We're all cut from the same cloth. Race is an absolute fiction. 
a total social cultural construct. Not only are we all interconnected, we all are ultimately probably descendants of the same handful of people who walked mm -hmm. out of Africa. And what that means is that every culture shares the same raw genius. And critically, how that genius is expressed is simply a matter of choice and cultural orientation. Mm -hmm. Words like primitive have no meaning whatsoever. And this allows us then to celebrate the key revelation of anthropology, you know, and that is the idea that every culture has something to say. Each deserves to be heard, just as none has a monopoly on the route to the divine. Hmm. What we need to do is infect the world with tolerance. In a way, just as you're talking, it just keeps reaffirming uh, our worldview and how, as human beings, we're the two-leggeds. You know, our elders always talk like that and they, they acknowledge our relatives the four-leggeds and the flyers like that's that's just what you your statement just reaffirms what our elders always do through ceremony and acknowledge us as the two-leggeds well you know Perry, it's not like i made this stuff up growing up in a suburb of montreal i i can say these things now as an elder myself i'm 66 for god's sake <laughs> it's because i've been taught by the elders i've spent mm -hmm. my entire life at their feet as a student you know i've been with the inuit when they kill a seal and, and they believe that 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 the animals you know you have to revere them if you don't drop fresh water into the mouth of a seal you'll never get another one but they yeah. also believe that the seals will suffer if they're not hunted i've been with people in the outback of australia and watched the protocols and the reverence with which a kangaroo is treated once it's killed it's the same mm -hmm. thing you know old old man alec who i uh, looked after for years, an old Gitsan chief and an incredible man, 43 before he had sustained contact with white society. And he, he spoke seven languages and English was his seventh. And his grandmother was Cree. And he said she had the medicine power. And he spoke English with the words of one speaking a foreign language very carefully. He never said, you must not hurt an animal because a hunter has to hurt an animal to eat, right? The word he said is, my mother said never suffer an animal because suffer something else. That implies domination, humiliation, mm -hmm. a, 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 a cruelty, right? So, so I've just, everything I know, I've learned from the elders. Hmm. No, it's just amazing. Uh, you are just listening and, and uh, talking with you. You are definitely an elder and you were schooled and, and uh, schooled very well, obviously, even to talk about thinking seven generations down the road that our decisions today, we have to think what impact will they have seven generations down the road. And now you've recently written a book called Magdalena. It's about your travels in Colombia as it ends uh, decades of civil war. And one of the effects of that war down in Colombia was that large numbers of indigenous peoples were isolated and they were left alone for decades to live their traditional lives now. And they, they thrived, you know, so is Colombia doing anything to build upon that lesson, that teaching that if left alone, indigenous peoples can survive and really start thriving. Well, I think can you share some thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's even better than that. The story, you know, I mean, you know, first of all, it's a story of, of hope just in terms of indigenous people. When I first lived in Colombia as a young uh, plant explorer and would go up to see the, uh, the Mamos uh, in the Sierra Nevada in 1974, parents of my friends at the university would say, ¿Por qué quiere vivir con la gente sucia? Why do you want to live with the dirty people? Now, a generation later, the last five Colombian presidents before taking office have made a, a journey to the Sierra to pay homage to the Mamos 
who have emerged as a symbol of continuity in a country that's had so many difficulties. In 1985, President Virgilio Barco said to a friend of mine, Martin von Hildebrand, do something for the Indians, as the president put it. In five extraordinary years as head of uh, Indian affairs, Martin did more than something. He secured legal land tenure for 57 ethnicities to an area of land collectively the size of the United Kingdom, the Northwest Amazon, uh, tenure that was encoded in perpetuity in the 1991 constitution of the country. And behind a veil of isolation, as you mentioned, Perry, caused by the troubles of modern Colombia, a whole new dream of culture was born. Now, let me tell you a story. Mm -hmm. When I first traveled to that area in the, in the 70s, it felt like a place that was falling apart. Uh, it felt like something happened, but a long time ago that was beautiful. Uh, anthropologists then were always predicting the 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 demise of cultures, right? And uh, a friend of mine, Stephen Hugh Jones, head of anthropology at Cambridge, had been part of a BBC strand of films called Disappearing Worlds, where he had sadly predicted the disappearance of the people that he had lived with for three years, the Barasana. Well, flash forward a generation in the wake of these decisions that were made by the Colombian government, and Stephen flies in to join us as we're making a film for the National Geographic of a three-day ceremony in honor of Cassava Woman. He walks into the great longhouse, sees 250 men and women in full ritual regalia, celebrating the wonder of fertility in this incredibly beautiful ceremony in which the men don't become symbols of the ancestors. They literally become the ancestors and they visit all the sacred sites. He couldn't believe his eyes. He gets out on the satellite phone. He calls his wife back in London and says, Christina, you won't believe my eyes. The only thing that disappeared were the bloody missionaries. And, and, and we asked the elders, Perry, after that, why did you allow these missionaries so long to be in your communities uh, when, when their intent was to destroy everything that you believe in. And these elders looked at, at us and said, because they promised to make us human. And that was so poignant. And that is the essence of colonization. That's what the residential schools were about, to persuade the colonized of their own inherent inferiority. But the great part of that story is that that they did kick out the missions and reinvented a culture. And this tells us that, you know, cultures are not static. They're ever changing. You know, I no more resemble my grandfather than Gujao resembles his grandfather on Haida Gwaii. We're not going to be the same. It's not about looking backward. It's not about freezing peoples in time. It's not even about the politics of, of land claims and treaty negotiations. It's a deeper question that I know you share in your heart. What kind of world are we all going to live in? How do we find a way that all voices of humanity find their proper place at the Council of Human Knowledge? How, is it, how, how can we find a way that, 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 that we, our children grow up uh, colorblind but proud of differences? Uh, you know, uh, in a truly multicultural, pluralistic world, you know, this is why, you know, the celebration of culture uh, is the antidote to nativism. You know, that's why anthropology is the scientific discipline most uh, antithetical to the values of a man like Donald Trump. You know, the purpose of, of um, everything I do is to make the world safe for human differences. And that, you know, that's why it's so, you know, it's not, for example, about, you know, somebody going back to a pre-industrial past or anyone being kept from the genius of modernity. It's how do we find a way that all peoples in the world uh, can benefit from the best of the modern scientific 
paradigm, but critically, without that engagement demanding the death of who they are as a people. You know, the Lakota did not stop being Sioux when they gave up the bow and arrow for the rifle any more than an American gave up, stopped being American when he gave up the horse and buggy for the automobile. It's neither mm -hmm. technology nor change that threatens culture. All cultures, all people are always dancing with new possibilities for life. What threatens the integrity of culture is what threatens the integrity of the biosphere and biodiversity, and that is power the crude acts of domination. And those acts can be identified, countered, and overcome as we find our way to a better world. Hmm. You know, Wade, that's a, that's a hopeful statement. Now we see, though, what's happening in, not only in Canada, but throughout the world. Like we see in the north, sea ice is melting in the north. Permafrost is melting. The oceans are starting to warm. And then our elders talk about and predicted like there's going to be big fires, the big winds, the big floods. All this is happening in the environment. And we've got to start thinking about what do we do for our next seven generations? And, and we all need clean air, clean water to drink. And we got these initiatives, Build Back Better, the Great Reset. The question I have for you, in spite of all these things happening in Canada and the world, what gives you hope? that things are changing or that what gives you hope? Hey, you give me hope, my friend. I mean, honestly, the very fact that we have an assembly of first nations, that we have a national chief, you know, it's like father Barry said in his book, a dream of the earth, the very fact that the first nations are still with us is itself in a sense, miraculous. Uh, given that diseases swept away 90% of your ancestors within a generation of contact. This this notion that indigenous people were decimated is a false use of the language because decimate in Latin means to kill one in 10. It was the opposite. It was nine in 10. And the psychological impact, you know, the Haida speak of smallpox as being a kind of blue, uh, a blue haze that came up the coast. Well, we know biologically that wasn't the case, but it perfectly it symbolizes what the smallpox meant to the people in 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 myth and memory, and and you know uh, you know I I I sort of remain optimistic because I'm a father. Um, I think pessimism is is an indulgence. Despair is an insult to the imagination. Just like orthodoxy is the enemy of invention. In my lifetime. Um, women have gone from the kitchen to the boardroom, people of color from the woodshed to the White House, gay people from the closet to the altar, um, indigenous people from, you know, uh, reservations in which a life, in the lifetime of my friend Jimmy Dennis, Oz, my best friend's uh, father uh, uh, and Mary Dennis, Taltan people, uh, they couldn't leave the reservation without permission of the priest. Uh, they couldn't leave the reservation without permission of a Mountie. They were made to kneel and kiss the ring of the bishop of, you know, who was Sodom. <laughs> it goes on and on. But we've changed, you know. I mean, there still is so much to do. But again, you know, we go back to the reconciliation uh, process. And when Father uh, uh, Justice St. Clair said, you know, the three questions in life, who am I, where do I come from, where am I going? You know, the indigenous people were, are always taught that all of their answers for all those questions for all of their history have been wrong. Well, that's not the case. It's not true. And, and so in that sense, you know, I, I think we don't have any option but to be optimistic. I'll tell you one thing. I learned from my father, who was not a religious man, but he's a really good, decent man with great values. And uh, mm -hmm. my father used to say, son, there's good and evil in the world. Take your side and get on with it. And what he was sort of saying is you're never going to beat evil. 
It's always going to be with us. And he had lived through the bloodstained century of violence, through the Depression, the war. His life was ruined in the Second World War. His father's life was ruined in the First World War. And what he was saying to me is this, life is not about a destination. It's about a path. In other words, you know, Peter Matthewson, a writer, friend I, I admire, said anyone who thinks they can change the world is wrong and dangerous. And he had in mind people like Hitler and Mao and Stalin who caused such agonies. But he was also saying that, you know, just, you know, you make a decision. You know, we think in the Christian tradition we're going to vanquish evil. But in the East, they don't say that. When Lord Christian was asked by a disciple the key question, if God's all-powerful, why does he allow evil to exist in the universe? Well, if you ask that question in Europe in the Middle Ages, you got burned at the stake. Um, but Krishna, Lord Krishna turned to the disciple and said, why, why does God allow, you know, why is evil in the universe if God's all-powerful? And uh, he said, to thicken the plot. In other words, in other words, it does exist. We're going to have evil. We're going to have good. And my father was saying, pick your side, put your shoulder to the wheel of righteousness and keep pushing that boulder uphill, because if you don't, it's going to roll back down and, and, and uh, don't ever expect to get to the top of the hill, but, but, but never dare quit your efforts on that side of the agenda, if you know what I mean. Hmm. That is a, a powerful statement and a hopeful statement, Wade, going forward. You know, when you ask what gives you hope, you know, and the fact that we're still here as First Nations people in spite of uh, the Indian Act that's put in place since 1876, and we weren't allowed to leave without a permit till 51 um, from the Indian agent. We weren't allowed to leave our reser reservations. We didn't have the right to vote till 1961. All the, uh, the oppression of the Indian Act, and then, of course, the genocide of the residential schools. You know, so those two things really hurt First Nations people. And I, I, I want to say to our listeners that it goes on to this, this day, I mean, look at the the, the obscene uh, percentage of inmates in our federal penitentiaries mm -hmm. that, that come from the First Nations. That is a national disgrace in Canada. Uh, a, a, a similar rates of the incarceration of African Americans is a disgrace in the United States. Um, uh, but you know, you know, working together, we can only make a more perfect uh, country. And uh, you know, I guess I find my my hope in in um in that i mean certainly i look at my own life and and i often you know perry when i'm with someone like you talking about these ideas i sometimes step back and i'm thinking inside my head like wow how do you have those ideas like i mean you grew up in this bourgeois you know um you know english suburb of montreal um you 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 didn't even know what an in, in indigenous person was really you know except in history so if, if whoever that little kid was back then who went off to college not knowing the difference between Karl Marx and the Marx Brothers, you know, but my point is that you, you can look at someone like me now, the author of 23 books and films and all these titles and everything, but it's all just the stuff that you accumulate over a long lifetime of activity. Creativity is a consequence of action, not its motivation. You just have to do and things happen. But the, the point I say to young people, and I say it, to those of us who are concerned whether people can change or not. You know, I, I developed these ideas over a lifetime of experience and learning from elders, not just indigenous elders, but also my mentors at university and, and so on. And so, you know, all of us are capable of becoming the new architects of a new kind of thinking, a new, a new vision of life itself in which, in which all of us turn to traditions to find new ways forward, new paths of redemption and hope. Wait, 
I think that's a powerful statement to close off on. You know, the line about keep working together to build a better country. That provides hope. So I want to thank you so much for coming on the Akhamemuk podcast. Thanks so much, Perry. Great to be with you. That's Wade Davis, author, scholar, British Columbia Leadership Chair in Cultures and Ecosystems at Risk at the University of British Columbia. And I want to thank all the people for listening to the Akamemic Podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. Give us a rating and tell your friends about us on social media. And as always, we want to give a big shout out to the Red Dog Singers of the Treaty 4 Territory in Southern Saskatchewan for providing our theme music. Until next time, I'm Perry Belgard, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations. Thank you.